The Jews told me that when the Turks entered the city, they advanced until they came to the synagogue entrance, and there God confounded them, and they fell of their own accord, stabbing one another with their swords and fleeing, although no one was pursuing them. What will become of you? And he responded in French, Le bon Dieu me pardonnera, c'est son métier. The good Lord will forgive me, that's his job. Which it might very well be, but only if accompanied by sufficient remorse. He who dares maliciously move another's bookstand to get in the way of the man who takes the usual three steps backwards at the end of Shemona Estre has to pay a fine of a quarter of a pound of wax. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back to episode two on letters and Jewish history. So we're in the middle of going through some fascinating letters. Let's dive straight in. Okay, although perhaps just to start with a correction from an eagle-eyed, or is it eagle-eared, listener, Rav Shmuley. Are eagles known for their ears? No. Not quite sure that they are. Referring to Rav Shriragon, occasionally I slipped into calling him Rav Sadyagon, who obviously lived earlier in time and did not write the Igeris that I was referring to, all the references in last week are strictly to Rav Shriragon, so thank you for pointing that out. Even Rabbi Hirsch can make a mistake. That should give motive to the listeners to listen even more carefully. Absolutely. Now, first of four today is uh, Rabbeinu Vadia of Bartanura, who was born around 1445, an Italian rabbi known for his important commentary on the Mishnah, printed basically in all Mishnayas, but perhaps an equal, although almost unknown achievement, was bringing the Jewish Kehillah in Jerusalem back to life after centuries, which is where he lived for the last 40 years of his life. I mean, I think you forgot the one of the massive achievements of his of having a bottle of wine. That is the staple on every Shabbos table around the... Do you have any connection to wine? Despite the label, and unlike, for instance, Rashi, he was never engaged in that trade. And in fact, the correct spelling of the city in which he was born is Bertinoro, not far from Venice. Now, he wrote much about his life, but we know far less about his early years in Italy. He mentions his father, Avram, who was a rabbi, and his education, professional activities indicate that he came from a, a wealthy family. He lived, as I mentioned, near Venice. He was involved in finance and teaching, and he is also known in Hebrew as Yare Yud Resh Aleph, which is probably an acronym of Yehi Ritsui Echov, may he be accepted, beloved by his brethren. The Bartanura wrote three comprehensive letters about his journey to Eretz Israel at a time where Jews were forbidden to travel from Venice to Eretz Israel, in fact, by papal decree. So he took a much longer route, went all the way through to the south of Italy. And it took him close to a year and a half, 
also, of course, due to the stops he made along the way, rather than, I don't know, 40 days or so. I always wonder when you talk about these crazy journeys that they used to go on back in the day, did they go with his, their families? Did he travel all together or did he just go on his own, own journey? Well, in fact, perhaps a bigger question is, did he have family by then? He does not mention a wife or children in his letters. There is a mention from somebody else about the sons of Rabovadia Yare, which could very well refer to him. But he definitely travelled to Eretisrol alone, because in his first letter, he writes that at one point there were 10 other Jews on the boat with him and that they were 11 in all. It's probable that his wife had died by the time he left. We do know that his father and brothers remained in Italy. And the truth is that although he was invited by various communities along the way to become their rabbi, the Bartonura refused all appointments because he was determined to make his way to Yerushalayim. Although the reason he left his town and province in the first place from a sort of careful reading of the first part of his 1488 letter seems to indicate that it was mainly the need to quickly leave. He writes, since God decreed my separation. It could be that he was uh, wrongly accused of some form of misconduct, but he definitely travelled alone. From the first letter he wrote, we learn that in 1485, he passed through Naples, Palermo, Rhodes, Alexandria, Cairo, Chevron, and eventually reaches Yerushalayim in 1488. And he has a real sense of what to sort of record in his letter. His first major stop is in Palermo in Sicily. Now, Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean. Jews lived there from the times of Chazal. Although just a few years after the Bartonura visited in 1492, in fact, all the Jews, about 37,000 of them were expelled. But at that time, there were 800 Jewish families there. And I would say to you, if you want to go to Palermo today, take the Bartonura's letter with, you will find some of the types of buildings that he described, and he gives a very vivid view of what it was like. The Jews there were not merchants or moneylenders. Sicily was much more simple. It didn't conform to the occupational profiles that we often find in Italy. And the Bartonura writes that the Jews are much despised by the non-Jews. And as a distinguishing mark, they are obliged to wear on their chest a piece of red cloth. They are also obliged to pay very oppressive taxes and provide forced labour for the city's projects, meaning to build roads or public buildings. And he adds, if anyone is to be executed or corporally punished, this is carried out by the Jews. And it's generally a very difficult time for the Jews there. What was the point of these letters? It sounds almost like a travel journal. His father had asked him to record points of interest, presumably when he left. And that's what he does. It's a very long letter. I mean, relatively speaking. And you, in fact, also get the sense when you read these letters that he's a very humble person. Uh, but there are almost little things here and there which show that he was a very beloved figure wherever he went. When he made his way out of Palermo, many of the people wanted to have almost a souvenir from him, a piece of his clothing or something. 
And he writes, I remained in Palermo from the 22nd of Tammuz 5247 until the Shabbos of Bereshis 5248. Upon my arrival, they asked me to deliver lectures on Shabbos afternoon, and God made me favorable in their eyes such that I was obligated to continue every Shabbos. And this proved to be a stumbling block for me because I had come to Palermo with the object of going to Syracuse, which is at the eastern end of the island, having heard that this was the time during which the Venetian ships bound for Beirut near Jerusalem would stop there. But they misinformed me, the community, and it would appear that this is deliberate. And I was kept there until the Venetian ships had passed by and went on their way. I therefore remained in Palermo speaking each Shabbos afternoon for nearly three hours, denouncing informers in the community and those who were guilty of other sins. So three hour musadroshas, and they still not only asked him to say, but made sure that he would. It probably says as much about them as about him, that they actually wanted to hear three hour weekly musadroshas. Yeah, I guess that is true. Yes. And not only that, he was clearly successful because at one stage he writes, the local elders informed me that many repented from many sins. While I was there, the informers also desisted. It seems to have been a particular plague locally. And then he says, in all the days of my service, I shall never reside among people who will love me as deeply and respect me as greatly as have the Jews who reside in Palermo. They did everything to persuade me to remain with them for at least a year, but my heart was set on going to Eretz Yisrael. Did he write any other major works besides for his most famous one on the Mishnah? There are other Sforum that he wrote, but they are, when you say famous, they are less known. But yes, he does. His next major stop was Rhodes. He describes the journey there, which definitely wasn't for the faint-hearted. At one stage, when we were about 60 miles from Rhodes, the wind turned against us and a storm drove us back 80 miles, and we stayed there 10 days anchored at sea. <laughs> we discussed Hagomo a few weeks ago. Uh, the relevance of it today, we could certainly see why it was established in the first place. Definitely back then. And then he says, in roads everywhere, there are stones lying about from the Turkish bombardment, which is a reference to 1480, when the ruler of the Turkish Empire attacked Rhodes, and the southern part of the island was the least fortified. It also happened to unfortunately be the Jewish quarter, and the bombardment not only destroyed the wall, but many of the houses. And then he goes on to say, the Jews told me that when the Turks entered the city, they advanced until they came to the synagogue entrance and there God confounded them and they fell of their own accord, stabbing one another with their swords and fleeing, although no one was pursuing them. But because this miracle took place at the synagogue, the governor built a large church in it and moved the synagogue to another location. He then adds, very few Jews are left in Rhodes, no more than about 22 families. They eat mostly vegetables and grain. They do not have meat or wine because the evil Greeks do not allow them to slaughter or make wine. I never saw Jews with the good qualities possessed by these Jews of Rhodes. They are intelligent and well-mannered, and they are as handsome as princes. And I have not breathed air as pure and wholesome as that of Rhodes. Wow. He eventually sails for Egypt. And then he says that in Alexandria, a rabbi came out to greet us at the city gates and thus saved us from the Muslims there who rob and mistreat foreign Jews entering Alexandria. There are about 25 Jewish families there, which is actually quite small. There are two ancient synagogues, but most people pray in the small synagogue for they believe that Eliyahu Novi appeared to the tzaddikim in the southeast corner of that synagogue. 
This large city is mostly desolate nowadays. One can see that it once was very beautiful, but few people live here because of the poisonous air that has plagued the area for the past few years. What's he referring to? I'm not actually sure it's where it came from. And then he describes Friday night. They would make kiddush, and they would have a full glass of raisin wine, which he said was quite good. And then he goes on to report that at every meal on Shabbos, they would have up to seven glasses of this raisin wine. And he describes the level of um, insobriety that uh, often happened. Sure, he had some mustard rushes to give there to. It's unusual if you think about it, that it's a Muslim country and alcohol would generally be bans in a country like that and Jews are drinking that amount and clearly uh, intoxicated possibly in public in a Muslim country Yes, it seems that it must have been quite a uh, free society and he then, probably as a result, describes how they did not leave their homes after lunchtime on Shabbos they used to skip Mincha on Shabbos in Shul until the Ashkenazim came to town and said, no, you have to go to Shul Probably an effect of the wine. Yes. And he then goes to Cairo and he writes that in all Muslim lands, no one enters a synagogue wearing shoes. And even if you're visiting a friend's house, people leave their shoes outside by the door. Cairo is filled with people speaking languages from all over the world. There are about 700 Jewish families in Cairo, of which 50 are Samaritan. The Kutim, in other words. The Samaritans only have the five books of the Torah. The rabbinic Jews feel very hostile to them because they still offer sacrifices on Hargurizim. Many of these Samaritans traveled with us from Cairo to their temple on Hargurizim to sacrifice the uh, Paschal lamb. They keep Shabbos from midday Friday to midday Saturday. And Jews in Muslim lands make themselves appear poor even when they are wealthy. Among the Jews in Cairo, some work as money changers, merchants and traders, because you can make a profit all year round, and people stay up day and night, and torches burn throughout the night to illuminate the streets and marketplaces. People, in fact, sleep on the ground outside their stalls or in the street, and they cook at home only once a week because they are so busy at their jobs, both the men and the women. And then, for the final leg of his journey, he travels overland to Eretz And the first city that he describes in Palestine is Gaza. And he writes, It is a beautiful city and as large as Jerusalem. I saw the building that, according to the Jews there, was pulled down by Shimshon in Tnach. There are about 70 Jewish families and two Samaritan families there. On the 11th of Nisan, which is just before Pesach, which is why the Samaritans would be travelling with him to Shech, their, uh, so to speak, Korban Pesach. We travelled from Gaza on donkeys. On the next day, we came to Hebron. It's a small town. The Muslims call it Al-Khalil. And I was in the Ma'orah the cave, and it is covered by a large mosque. The Muslims treat the place with great respect and come on pilgrimage from all other Muslim lands to worship there. In the cave itself, where the Ovais, the patriarchs, are buried, neither Jew nor Muslim may enter. The Muslim pilgrims throw money into the cave through the shafts, and at present, about 20 rabbinic Jewish families live in Hebron. And then he adds, which is very interesting, every day they distribute bread and lentils or some other vegetables to the poor, whether Muslim, Jew or Christian, in honour of our forefather Abraham. Wow. Seems like we can get on if we need to. Absolutely. 
he then journeys to Yerushalayim, and he will stay there till the end of his life. He was instrumental in helping the community because they were weighed down by a very unjust tax burden. And he sets up a, a charity support network because the Spanish Inquisition of 1492 will bring masses of Jewish refugees to Eretz Yisrael, and he becomes a spiritual leader for them as well. He sets up a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, one of the first in, so to speak, modern times, and he will be respected by both the Jews and the non-Jews there. And eventually, uh, at his patera, he will be buried at the base of Harazesim. And his letter has been reprinted a number of times in various languages and is really a look into life in the late 1400s. It's beautiful when you receive a, an old letter like that with such uh, clear descriptions from uh, eyewitnesses. Yep. And the whole motive in the letter was just to display almost like a photo of what life was like, which he, which he did so yeah, well. Very much. On to the next letter. Yes, our next letter was written by Heinrich Heiner who was born in 1797 in Germany and died in 1856. He might not be well known to all of our listeners, but he was a writer of note. Poetry, plays, essays, fiction, travel books, journalism. And um, he personally led an interesting life. He met Goethe uh, twice. He knew Karl Marx. He was the victim of state censorship in Germany. In fact, a, a warrant for his arrest in Prussia was issued in 1835, and that's why he moved to France, because of its freedom of expression, a freedom which was so abused that he then lived through two revolutions in France in July 1830 and February 1848. Now, his fame rests particularly on his poetry, and he is seen almost as the poet laureate in Germany, but he was Jewish. He is born at a time where the reform movement begins. Napoleon liberated the Jews of Germany, most of Germany, in the first years of the 1800s and uh, literally opened the ghetto doors. Officially, there would be no more discrimination. But the hype never matched the reality. And Jews quickly found out that whatever the law says, discrimination stayed. And in fact, the only way to really become part of society was by conversion, although admittedly voluntary as opposed to forced, uh, you know, during the time of crusades or whatever. We haven't really dealt with Germany in the 1800s and the beginnings of the reform movement on the podcast. So we've had many requests to deal with it. Was he one of the people who was behind the creation of reform? Okay, so we will do a series on reform in Germany for all those that have asked. It is important, which is not only history, but it explains, for instance, where U.S. jewelry is today. But to get back to your second question, for the moment to understand that more Jews converted to Christianity in the 19th century than converted by force in the previous 900 years, all as a result of assimilation and the attraction of the outside world beyond the ghetto. This is basically their first exposure to it in a thousand years. So he himself did not spearhead any movement. In fact, in many ways, I guess you could say that he, in sort of one person, represents much of German jury in the 1800s. Uh, you know, the, the questions, the uncertainties of identity and all of the choice they are faced with. Am I now a German of mosaic persuasion? Am I a German Jew? Am I a Jewish German? 
And there's a very good book that I can recommend to listeners called The Pity of It All by Amos Elon on this topic. But no doubt we'll be hearing a lot more about that in our series. On the podcast, yes. But until then. So, he lived in very fluid times for Jews. In 1819, Heiner began studying law at the University of Bonn. Six years later, and three different universities, and a semester-long suspension, and even an invitation to a duel that never took place, Heiner finally graduates. But... Prussia had been systematically restoring the legal discriminations against the Jews, the ones that had been removed during the time of Napoleon. So, in June 1822, Jews are excluded from the higher ranks of the army. In March 1823, the Jewish religion is now described as only being tolerated. It's not equal in any way. In August 1822, Jews are now to be excluded from public academic posts, which means that he will never achieve the position of being a professor in a university. And Jews are also excluded from the practice of law, so he can't pursue what he has now achieved in his degree. And therefore, he did what many German Jews did over the next century. In 1825, he put himself through a conversion to becoming a Protestant Christian. And Heine expected that this conversion would help him win a um, coveted academic position, which never materialised. And he asked a friend, isn't it strange, I just converted to Christianity and now I'm hated by both the Christians and the Jews. And all of this frustration, disappointment, even remorse that his actions brought about can be seen in a very famous letter which once again says so much about German jury back then. On January the 9th, 1826, less than a year after his conversion, Heine sent a letter to his classmate and confidant, Moses Moser. And he says, From the nature of my thinking, you can deduce that baptism is a matter of indifference to me. I do not regard it as important, even symbolically, and that in the circumstances in which it will be carried out, in my case, it will have little significance. The baptismal certificate is the ticket of admission to European culture. In other words, that's why he's done it. My being a Christian is the fault of those Saxons who suddenly changed saddles at Leipzig which means at the Battle of Leipzig in October 1813, the Saxon troops who'd been fighting with the French defected, and that's why Napoleon lost. And then he goes on to say, or it is the fault of Napoleon, who really didn't have to go to Russia, uh, where he basically got stuck uh, because of the weather conditions and ultimately defeated. Or it is the fault of his teacher of geography, who did not tell him that Moscow winters are very cold. Did he have any connection to the Jewish community throughout his life? Yes and no. When he was younger in Germany, he was a member of the Society for the Culture and Science of the Jews, which in German is the Verein für Kultur und Wissenschaft der Juden. Uh, which is an attempt to basically fuse Judaism with science and enlightenment. But even then, he wasn't really a champion of Judaism. He was really an advocate, probably a strong advocate, for Jewish civil rights, I guess you could say. I mean, in a word, he basically hated anti-Semitism. And it is actually the subject of a number of poems in the later part of his life. And... 
It's somewhat ironic, his relationship with Jews, because given his decision, Heine nevertheless despised the assimilation that Jews underwent to find acceptance in Germany. Even though he saw the shtetl Jews of Poland as being backward, he found in a way more to admire there than in the assimilated Jews of Germany who were wearing the fashions of the day and quoting, as he put it, second-class writers, neither fully German nor fully Jewish. And he felt that unlike the Greeks and the Romans and others whose loyalty was to their rulers, the Jews always clung to the law as the highest principle and the Bible was their portable fatherland. Almost sounds like he was living with regret on his uh, conversion. And it sounds like he stayed from Judaism, you know, even with all these thoughts, he still stayed away. I think the way perhaps to put it is whatever his sympathies were with Judaism and perhaps with the Jews, he never made that move, but he never denied being a Jew. He, uh, it has a quote, it would be distasteful and mean if, as people say of me, I have ever been ashamed of being a Jew, but it would be equally ridiculous if I ever claimed to be one. Uh, but the truth is that his critical look at life extended way beyond religion to almost all nations. He found the English to be uninspired. His native Germany was for him the land of bigots and patriotism there consisted of basically hatred of the French. America, which he never visited, he called that monstrous prison of freedom where the most repulsive of tyrants, the populace, holds sway. And all men are equal, equal dolts, right, idiots, with the exception, naturally, of a few million who have a black or brown skin and are treated like dogs. So, you know, he didn't have a lot of time for people. And so, too, with religions, you know, for much of his life, he was the enemy of all organized religion. And he rejected Christianity for a number of reasons, one of which was because no Jew can believe in the divinity of another Jew. By 1831... Almost six years after his baptism, Heine had had enough of German censorship and, you know, repeated criticism of his work. So he moves to Paris. And in fact, two years later, all of his works in Germany would be confiscated by a decree, by a ruling of the states of the German Confederation. And Heine would become almost a refugee. And he spends the rest of his life in exile, you could call it, in France, in Paris. And he mixes there in very famous literary circles. He socialises with personalities like um, Alexandre Dumas and Chopin, and he becomes even more famous. But in May 1848, he takes to bed in his Paris apartment, from which he never arose. He would spend eight years of his life because of an illness that caused the degeneration of his spine and left him basically paralyzed. Yet, through this illness, his passion for writing never subsides. And possibly what is considered to be his best volume of verse, not that I've read all of them and could give you a comparative analysis, but so it is said. So the volume called Roman Zero and much else was written from this mattress grave, as he defined it. And towards the end, he wrote Confessions, in which he said that for years he failed to show his fellow Jews sufficient respect, blinded as he was by his partiality to Hellenic asceticism. I see now that the Greeks were only beautiful youths, but the Jews were always men, powerful, uncompromising men, not just in the days of old, but right up to the present, despite 18 centuries of persecution and misery. 
and he endows God with the attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, wisdom, justice and mercy. But he added a new one, at least to him, a sense of humour. I mean, given the direction of German Jewry, where it was at the time, where it was heading, which I assume became even more simulated as the century continued, a description of Jews this way would have been quite unusual, no? Yes, in other words, a, a sort of a, a turnabout to, back towards valuing Jews. And positivity, yeah. Uh, I mean, listen, perhaps illness does that. But equally, many years earlier in his life, in the 1820s, he had written The Rabbi of Bachrach, which was a novel about a small town and the rabbi who leads the community. So, as we said, he was completely conflicted. And famously, as he lay dying, his wife, his non-Jewish wife, said to him, what will become of you? And he responded in French, le bon Dieu me pardonnera, c'est son métier. The good Lord will forgive me, that's his job. Which it might very well be, but only if accompanied by sufficient remorse. So, who knows? And the National Library in Israel has that letter that he wrote over the remorse over conversion in 1826. Very colourful character. Absolutely. On to our third letter out of four. We've spoken a number of times about the Geniza, a repository of so much information as mentioned in our four-part series on the Geniza. And therefore, it's not surprising that in a series of Jewish letters, we would find one in the Geniza. But it is an unusual one because of a hole in one word, a small hole about a centimetre by two centimetres that has perplexed academics for years. Tiny damage that created a lot of correspondence. In fact, in many ways, it sort of gives us an insight into the scholarship required for identification of documents. The letter was originally published by the historian Jacob Mann in 1931. He called it a document concerning a member of the family of Reptodrus, Nassi of Narbonne in the south of France. And he explained the story of an incredibly dedicated, very dedicated woman who came from a wealthy Christian background, converted to Judaism, very rare in Europe during the Middle Ages, married a man called David from this family of Reptodrus, but her vengeful Christian family came after her, either to, to kill her or kidnap her, and she was forced to flee, and they ended up in a new community where her husband David was killed in the synagogue by invaders. It's unclear if they were actually these family members. And two of the couple's children, Jacob and Justa, were seized by them and never seen again. And there's only one child left. And the letter that we have is an appeal for the widow and her baby, who are now in abject poverty. And it is sent to various killers, and a copy ends up in Cairo. So where did they flee to? Where did she end up? Well, that, unfortunately, is the stupid hole in the parchment, because most of that word, which is location, where the letter is being sent from, is missing. And man, based on the outline remaining, suggested that it was Anju, which in Hebrew would have been Aluf Nun Yud Vav, or Nun Vav Yud, rather, uh, which is in northern France where a number of the Balitosos lived. And he also suggested that since the letter appeared to be from the 11th century, the violence was probably that of the infamous Crusades in, in 1096. So that was in 1931. 
comes along the historian Norman Golb, who, you know, he's quite an expert in the history of the Jews of Europe, and he examines this letter. And he proposes another reading of almost exactly the same letters to fit into the ink there, but mem nun yudvov instead of aluf nun yudvov, same amount of spacing. And he concludes that it refers to Monye, which is a small historic village in southern France. And he is basically guided by two principles. First of all, the letters have to fit into the space and the, the ink traces. And the place has to be associated with an era known to have been inhabited by Jews in the Middle Ages. And on the basis of this, he creates a picture of an anti-Semitic attack carried out by Crusaders as they passed through the Vaucluse. And in fact, until three years ago, the Wikipedia page for Monnier wrote as the principal fact of its history that the town is the site of a medieval pogrom that occurred at the end of the 11th century. And the story of this tragedy that occurred to this family in Monnier drew quite a bit of attention beyond the usual scholarly audience. It even reached page four of the New York Times in December 1966. However, things don't end there. In 1999, Edna Engel, who's a paleographer, in other words, someone who assigns uh, dates and places to old documents and writings, and uh, Joseph Yalom, who's a historian of Hebrew literature, published two linked articles. They re-examined the letter. They subjected it to a new analysis, in particular in the light of another discovery, another letter much damaged from the same scribe written by the same person and apparently referring to the same tragic events. This is in two fragments. And between them, they relate the story of a widow who suffers at the hands of the Christians, loses her husband, is threatened with being burnt at the stake, which would appear to be something that might have happened to somebody who were changed from being a Christian to a Jew. But here, the city of Najera in Castile, in northern Spain, makes an appearance. The mention of Najera and when you put that together with the Sephardic type of handwriting, led Engel and Yalom to look for a town in northern Spain that might be transcribed in the 11th century as Mem Nun Yud Vov, and they found Munio near Burgos in Castile. Still the same lettering. So here we now have the Sephardic origins of the parchment and of the script and identification of the language and a potential historical background. I would find it odd, though, that they wouldn't write that she's a convert, which seems like a very vital detail in a letter like that. When they're trying to raise funds, yeah. I don't know that it necessarily at that time it would have been unusual for people to relate to. So I'm not sure that necessarily, but yes, potentially. But in the second letter, there is so much missing that could very well have been included in there. Now, Castile had well-established Jewish communities, and they were a safe haven from Jews fleeing from persecution elsewhere. This is long, obviously, before any of the troubles in Spain. And they had historic links with the Jewish community in Narbonne, which would be a very plausible reason why the couple should relocate there. And this region saw outbreaks of violence directed at the Jews sporadically from the first half of the 11th century onwards, all of which together is quite compelling as a background for the events in the letter. Now, Simon Schama, in his recent story of the Jews, followed Golb's Monnier 
and not Engels uh, Munio, but he's only as reliable as sources which he has used. And he's, you know, he's a writer of history, he's not a researcher. And other scholars tend to agree that this 11th century letter found in the Geniza is probably from northern Spain and looking for economic aid for this woman who left a noble, wealthy Christian family to become a Jew. Yeah, but surely the town of Munio was or was not involved in the Crusades. I mean, was it attacked? Surely that would be something we would know. Okay, so at least two leading historians of the Crusades do not include Monier in any of the Crusade attacks, even in what they call questionably attacked, which means those which are poorly documented or disputed attacks. But it could be, you know, we don't know everything that happened back then. There isn't a record of everything. But there is a different reason, perhaps, to discount Monier, because French at that time pronounced all the consonants in the word... In fact, even in France today, you have certain towns like uh, Aix-le-Bain or Aix-en-Provence where they pronounce that X. Now, Golb is cognizant of this, and he mentions this in his early publications, but he found enough examples where the final consonant was left out to convince himself that this is an early example of that, and therefore without the X. Although, in many other places like Bordeaux at the time, ends with either a samach or a shin, a sien, and mo is mem yud vav tzadi. So there does appear to have been at the time a Hebrew letter for the French ones and nothing was silent. And therefore, it presumes that a Jew from Monieu would have written it in five letters at least, not in four, and there would not have been enough place in that hole for the five letters. So, all in all, we do not have absolute identification because of one annoying bookworm who ate through this specific piece of parchment, but it's a likely identification. You mean a literal bookworm, not yes, the yes, slang. Yes, yes, no, I mean an actual worm. <laughs> but the story, of course, stands. A very courageous woman, a very loyal, goes through Messirus Nefesh and loss and flight, ends up in poverty, and a letter is written on her behalf. It's a small detail in the broader history of Kallisrol, but it talks about their commitment. And as well as obviously a fascinating glimpse into the level of research that goes into the Geniza. Our final letter for today? A short one. In 1756, Frederick the Great created a constitution for Prussian Jewry. We actually saw this in an earlier podcast a couple of years ago. And in that same year, 1756, two barons in an obscure village in Franconia signed a constitution for the Jews of Sugenheim, not like Prussian Jewry numbering thousands, but for a tiny community of 12 householders. Why, you may ask? The local barons wanted to regulate the lives of the Jewish subjects and keep them from quarrelling with one another and help them conduct themselves properly in their new synagogue, which had just been built in the previous year. And here are some of the regulations. Since one must go to the synagogue on Mondays and Thursdays, everyone who remains at home on such days and does not go must pay a fine of one kreutzer to the Jewish treasury. No householder shall gossip in the synagogue from the prayer beginning, Blessed be he who said, Baruch Omar, to the 18 benedictions from an Esrei. He shall not speak a word under threat of a fine of a quarter of a pound of wax for the Jewish treasury, because the wax is what they use, obviously, for candles to light up the shul. He who quarrels with another in the synagogue must pay a fine of 20 kreutzer, half of which goes to the civil authorities and the other half to the Jewish communal treasury. 
If a couple of congregants quarrel over a book stand, or even more engage in an actual fight, each one is to be fined a florin, half of which is to go to the civil authorities and half to the Jews, and the men who have quarrelled are to be moved to the back of the synagogue opposite one another and to be kept there for a year. The uh, bookstands, by the way, in the synagogue were assigned according to rank, and these uh, portable desks were a frequent cause of strife, and it comes into another rule there. He who dares maliciously move another's bookstand to get in the way of the man who takes the usual three steps backwards at the end of Shemona Estray has to pay a fine of a quarter of a pound of wax. And the honourable baronial rulers have graciously confirmed this communal constitution with their esteemed signature in their own hand and with their baronial seals the 30th of December in the year 1756. I mean, it's quite genius if you think about it. It's before the technology of fundraising online, which we see so much of today. They seem to have had all their coffers filled with the various <laughs> punishments and fines. We should just copy it. Should we reinstate it? But, but what is the story there? They sound like they didn't stop arguing. All the fines were about fighting. So before we discredit them, first of all, important to know their, their commitments to, first of all, living simply, their stock of their philanthropy, their religiosity. It was too small for these 12 householders to support a rabbi. So, you know, it could have been that the fights were, do you say this before that or after that? What's the minag? And there's, you know, no authority there. But the shul remains a focus. And between them, they provided 220 meals a year for the poor. The peak of the community was 160 people in 1837, which was just over 20% of the total population. The Jewish population in 1933 was down to 42. And a school was actually opened in the 19th century, closed in 1924. So they had a commitment to that with tiny numbers. And after 1924, the community still employed a teacher who was also the chazan and the shechet. In 1933, the community still had a Hever Kedisha and a branch of Agudas Yisrael youth group. But obviously on Kristallnacht, like so many other places, even though this was tiny, the shul and its sifritera and furniture were destroyed. And even the furniture in the defunct Jewish school was destroyed by the Nazis. And in January 1939, the last Jew left the village. It's always sadly the familiar tragedy of when you learn so much about a place. And I was, I was just about to ask you, where can we still visit this shul and hopefully see some frayed yellow paper on the wall showing these rules? There's, there's, so there's, there's little online. I don't know if the shul still exists, but it sounds like it was burnt but not destroyed. So perhaps. For our next trip. Yes. I wanted to end with a mention of what is happening in the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, this week, because the war in Israel has moved in certain ways from the military to international politics with the stated goal of sanctions against Israel. South Africa has openly accused Israel of genocide, which is as shameful as it is absurd. And I'd like to deal with it at greater length at the end of next week's podcast, because this is far less available to be read online or in books. It's a relatively new organization. Yes, it's been around since 1945, but there have been less than 200 cases in the past 80 years. And it's a relatively new area of attack and delegitimization, because what's potentially at stake it's not just, you know, perhaps a ban on the sale of weapons to Israel, but trade bans and issues of flying over countries in Europe. If you think about South Africa at the height of apartheid, 
So we'll come back to that. But next week, in the main, we continue the series with Moses Montefiore in his early visits to Israel, a letter written in 1933, and a letter from one of the Roshonim. Thank you for ending off with that. just want to reiterate that, of course, the war is still ongoing and we should still all be feeling for our brethren out there, especially the hostages who are yet to be released. And the fact that we've gone back to our regular recording schedule is not due to the fact that the war has been minimized in any way, but rather there's enough other outlets for current events. And the reason we did our series was for a historical narrative. But, of course, it's still important to keep at the forefront of our minds. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Please send any questions, any feedback to podcast.jle.org.uk. Please make sure that you subscribe, that you don't miss another episode. And we'll see you next week for the final installment on Letters.